0: Our next speaker is Dr. Gordon Bermont, who will be speaking on self as a perpetual work in progress. Uh, When I last spoke to him about this paper, he promised me that he was going to give us all of his secret techniques for winning at Sudoku. Dr. Bermont, please. It's both intimidating and inspiring followed Professor Cicino and uh, The intimidation is obvious. Uh, it's amateur hour following Broadway. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the inspiration comes in part from Marbuno's uh, embodying the heart of those which we know you know Professor Shenmue, I've never heard Marx speak like that before. Mm-hmm. That's George know The question that we were asked to address, what contributions can Shin thought make to the issues of contemporary philosophy? Mm-hmm. I answered directly, Shin Buddha's thought and practice can provide a stable bridge to cross from the loss of the traditional Western Self <laughs> to the appreciation of a New Self, which I believe is the no-self of the if you Notice, if you've got one of the 30 handouts that i prepared, You'll see that in this slide I don't say appreciation. I say gain. And as I read it over, I said, oops, gain has the right word. I'm not acquiring something. I'm appreciating. So if you have one of those, I'm grateful that you cross out gain, <laughs> and write in appreciation Thank you very much. One of the things that I remind myself all the time is no one speaks to everyone. I think I may have a very limited audience. I love teaching undergraduates. I believe that undergraduates expose themselves to the so-called Western canon, and yet our people are faith that they can become frightened, threatened, and insecure. The Western canon, I believe, is falling apart in front of them. And I believe that, like a bullet train heading toward Ogaya, we're moving toward an appreciation of the reality of Buddhism. And I believe that Hinduism in particular can provide the kind of support for earnest seekers and searchers as they work their way through an ability to come deeply to grips with modern contemporary philosophy and what that implies and as they are doing it, not become nihilistic, not become despairing, uh, not give up. So, I don't know how many people here are in that boat, but it is people in that boat which I myself have been in for decades that I try to reach. I do believe that we are moving in the direction of a holistic worldview specifically. No permanent or eternal self, no permanent or eternal entities of any kind, and interdependent causality. Contemporary philosophies right in the middle of it, why? Because contemporary philosophy is, after centuries, opening up to the reality of science. Modern philosophers, more than previous philosophers, are willing to grapple with the fact, and not just with the abstractions of science. Science is, in its turn, increasingly engaged with the nature of consciousness, And science challenges the existence of the traditional self as a point source within us, as a singularity of the body-mind. What that means is philosophers who are those who attempt to tangle with these ideas or untangle them are right in the midst of the effort to make sense of this. So in just that sense, it's the philosophical effort to engage with modern worldview, which is driven by science in many ways, which constitutes a lot of contemporary philosophy. So that's the direct linkage uh, that brings us to this state. So who are we in this modern view? Well, according to the well-known gadfly Daniel Dennett, we are reflective, communicating animals. According to Owen Flanagan, another highly respected contemporary philosopher, we are all animals and the brain is our soul. This is not all such bad news. There are still persons. Consciousness exists love, friendship, and morality, all gain. These views of people like Dennis and Flanagan are often associated, particularly in the case of Dennis, with kind of a strident, militant atheism. Or in the case of Flanagan, as you will see later on, with kind of a quietism. He refers, he, Flanagan, in my view, as you see, kind of retreats into kind of a gauzy... of Buddhism uh, that I think doesn't engage his analytic self as well as he might uh, do it. I mean, Buddhism can withstand his analysis. He won't crumble if Owen Brunigan decides to get serious about Buddhism, which I don't think he quite has yet. But that's okay. It's hard to be still very much. There are excellent scientists who discuss this position, of whom my favorite is Francis Collins, the head of the Human Genome Project, who is a totally committed Christian and has no trouble finding his Christian faith while being one of the eminent biomedical scientists of the day. So we mustn't get smug in respect to science delivering some kind of knockout blow <laughs> against traditional theism. Doesn't even happen. No should. We are all aware of the less persuasive theistic arguments that try to do a cop-out by engaging with notions of intelligence of creationism. These are, do not bring credit to their proponents. So we needn't worry too much about that approach to try to save uh, theism from the ravaged sun. I refer here to returning to Flanagan later on. So who am I? Who is this self? I am conscious, I am embodied, and thank you so much to previous speakers for enriching this sense of embodiment. Embodiment will now mean more to me than it has before because of its exposure in the previous two talks. I am social and I change over time. These are four characteristics I think that are largely uncontroversial, although in contemporary philosophy nothing is uncontroversial (laughs) because (laughs) tenure (laughs) arises (laughs) out of controversy. So one must find something controversial, and the more apparently uncontroversial is the topic you can challenge, the quicker your path uh, to security of employment. (coughs) What is consciousness? Subjective qualities, qualitative states of sentience or feeling or awareness. In the waking state, in the dreaming state, And importantly, consciousness, we've kind of accepted now for at least a hundred years and not more, always about something. The idea that consciousness can exist independent of an object of it is rather controversial in some circles. Uh, certainly in meditative circles one might say, oh, I can have pure consciousness without a reference. Maybe. But for the most part, for the rest of us, it's always about something. We owe that that to Promsprin-Carno, further developed by William James and picked up big time by Sigmund Bray. Now, please note what I'm doing here. Why am I going through this history? I'm going to do more because remember who I'm addressing I'm addressing those people who have engaged this history of the Western canon and are despairing as a result of where they think it's taking them so I want to rehearse it to say, yes, 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 that's right, that's right but look where it's going, don't be afraid What are the features of this consciousness? Number one, it arises out of a first-person perspective. It's mine. My consciousness is in some way mine, and moreover, it's mine alone. There's something privileged about my first-person being. And it appears to me as unanalyzed. I don't have to ask for it. It's just there. So it arises in me. It's unique to me, I own it in some way that's unchallengeable, and I don't have to analyze it. Embodiment. I am flesh and blood. I am a physical entity that is not privileged. I don't own my heart like I own my mind. And I can get a heart transplant. I can't get a mind transplant as much as I might want it sometimes. <laughs> this mind of mine is thoroughly, completely, and inescapably embodied. And it's embodied in two ways. We pay a lot of attention to the brain. But a brain in a pack is not embodiment. We need the rest of our bodies as well. So embodied not just in the sense of brain work, but embodied in the sense that a brain in a bat, whatever the science fiction associated with it, will not get the job done. You are not a figment of my imagination. This is a classic trap of so-called solipsism. That if we take our mental life too seriously, we end up living all by ourselves. We simply say, no, that's wrong. I'm sorry, Bishop Barclay, you're wrong. Daniel <laughs> Johnson did it by kicking a rock. Not a very deep reputation. (laughs) Nevertheless, there is some sense in which we accept I accept, you exist. Please give me the same courtesy. We communicate with each other. That's so important. I know that Reverend Gibbs in his paper stresses Hagel's position on the self as being essentially formed by its recognition bias. It. Our relationships are structured biologically, psychologically, historically, and socially. This is the baggage that we bring with us. We can't help it. This is who we are. Change is everywhere. Biology is all about change. Learning occurs. Memory is critically important. We underestimate the significance of our individual memories, perhaps, in structuring the nature of our lives. The codification of memory in its cultural artifacts creates, according to some people, a whole separate world, a third world, according to Carl Popper, of artifacts, where memory becomes stored and retrievable. Without culture, memory quickly will go. The notion of the self, which is what? we're talking about, depends on all four of these characteristics of human life. And disagreements arise out of disagreements about one or more of these four characteristics. Consciousness, embodiment, sociality, and change. The first thing we have to admit is there is no unitary definition of self. Here's a list from an excellent book I recommended to you, Levin's series of the Self. A list of different ways in which the word is used. Soul, substrate, organizing activity, explanatory, hypothesis, mental structure, index terms of a narrative, an experience, the flow of experience, and a goal or norm as in self-realization. So without a a subscript self sub one, sub two, sub three we could easily end up talking past each other. So before we engage in arguments about the self it would be wise to be sure that the sense of self that we are using in our discussion agrees when we engage in the discussion. All of that said, it's important to remember that often these discussions are by, for, and about academics. We usually have no trouble talking about self in everyday life. And the everyday language of self needn't be disaggregated, deconstructed, and destroyed in order for us to make headway. We simply sometimes have to bracket it, in, or bracket certain parts of it to make sure that we are going ahead. But, certainly, I don't take it to be the new, it's not necessary for us to reciprocate. Oh, and by the way, never talk about yourself. Well, of course you talk about yourself. Let's not get be silly. In our efforts in talking to Buddhism, let's not get silly and start telling people that things that they just think is not, well, you don't really have a self, you know. I'm Buddhist, I know. Two aspects of understanding the self that are so critically important is how and when did we begin to think of the self primarily in terms of our emotional lives as distinct from our intellectual lives. And second, What about the nature of the self in relation to the layers of our awareness or our consciousness? A lot of what's going on, a lot of where the trouble is, where the action is, where the anxiety arises in respect to who am I, arises in respect to either my emotional life, some aspect of my emotional life, or, that stuff may be going on that I'm not aware of, I'm not who I thought I was, I have these impulses, I don't know what to do with it, doctor! What can I do? That's it. Up until a certain point, the self was all about my thought. I was the abstract, rational thinker. The brain in the back. Cogito ergo sum. If I doubt and doubt and doubt and doubt, eventually I'll get to a place that the only thing I can't doubt is that I'm doing this thinking. I think, therefore I am. Kind of the mantra of the beginning of modern philosophy. It wasn't until Bertrand Russell a number of years later that he said, "You know what, Rene?" speaking to that Descartes, that's a logical mistake. It's not cogito ergo, sum, it's cogito ergo cogitat. I think, therefore there is thought. Not I think, therefore I am. The number of books that have more recently been written that send René Descartes to the woodshed for <laughs> <laughs> having made that mistake is some small industry. Descartes error, Descartes mistake, what was Descartes thinking? <laughs> you know? But for Descartes, was he non emotional about Can you imagine locking yourself up and doubting systematically everything? You don't think that's emotional? Of course it's emotional. He wanted to get in touch with God. God came in through the pineal gland at the base of his brain. Back and forth through this little tiny gland at the base of the brain. <laughs> and the region he found is there was that's one of the few spots in the brain that's not bilateral. God isn't going to come in two places. God's unitary, so where in the brain can you find places? There's only one. There are very few. And there's this little gland at the base of the brain called the pineal gland, which so it's right in the midline. That's a good place for God to come in there. So that's what <laughs> we We had these two kinds of stuff: cogitan, cogitation, reflexions, physical stuff and mental stuff, and never the twain shall meet. Whole courses, books, syllabi taught on this distinction and how different philosophers dealt with it. Different, different talks. But disembodied mind, disembodied mind is a literal feature of this aspect of traditional Western philosophy. Mind is separate stuff and mind is pure thought. Pure thought. Okay. a little bit of heavy lifting. We'll move quickly. <laughs> This notion of the self, of the cogito. soul, some philosophers went on to say, there has to be this enduring self, because if there isn't an enduring self, there can't be any container for a thought. So you have the metaphor of the container and what is contained in it. If there's a thought, there has to be a container for the thought to occur in it. The metaphor blinds us. If thought is flowing, there has to be a glass for this fluid. That glass for the fluid is me, I, so, I am, I'm thinking. Kant says this, but at a very abstract level, he understood completely that at a phenomenal level, everyday consciousness, you're not thinking all the time, well, I'm doing this, I'm doing that, you have your thoughts. I had an abstract transcendental level. Here's the thing. You, heard the, you hear the word transcendental? Run and hide. <laughs> run and hide. It's not going to get you anywhere. With all respect, with all respect, cable run and hide in here. <laughs> What Kant was responding to was the common sense, everyday empiricism of David Hume, the great Scottish philosopher. He said, Well, you know, guys, when I sit and think, I don't find I don't find anything permanent here. It's just a dream. Kant said, have assertion, by you awoke me from my dogmatic slumber. And he woke up to save the self. To save this transcendental self. Because he thought, if we don't have it, we have no rationality. So what's being held, what is being protected, defended against all comers, is the notion that we are rational. We have to be rational. Because if we're not rational with nothing, whoa, that's some tough fortress to defend. Kierkegaard goes to Berlin to learn from Hegel. Comes back and he says, Hegel's system is a magnificent castle. But I don't live in the castle. I live in the pretty. I live in the bathroom of Hegel's castle. Now, now we're getting close to each other. You? <laughs> now we're opening the door to the reality of life. I live in the bathroom of this great evidence. The self, he says, is essentially intangible and must be understood in terms of possibilities, dread, and decision. When I behold my possibilities, I experience that dread which is the dizziness of freedom. And my choice is made, and this is his famous phrase, in fear and trembling. I am what I choose. On the one hand, he sustains his self by saying, I choose. On the other hand, he is naked. Naked to the world that he finds. Now, affect, emotion, feeling has entered the discussion of the self seriously with Schopenhauer. The idea of that disembodied mind that this other stuff floating around No, we're in the toilet! <laughs> and we got to come to grips with that reality. A way to commitment and faith just gets scary and that's the point with Kierkegaard, things begin to get scary. William James picks this up We in James, famous phrase, stream of contents, for James, the thought and the figure can be identified. Here we have the identification of the divided self. Now this is the other part of it. The self as non-unitary as divided only parts of which we are immediately in touch with. But the king of this school, Freud, contemporary of James, life has not been the same since they've been What happens after that in response, in antagonism, the writing about the self explodes. It explodes the beginning of the 20th century a huge proliferation of views, all of which go to one conclusion. The singular and unified self becomes harder and harder to support. Freud Freud begins it. As psychiatry picks it up, the mind becomes embodied in the sense of pharmacologized and otherwise manipulable through surgery, through drugs. So all of a sudden, who I am depends on what medicines I'm taking and whether or not I'm going to let that guy get into my head with his knife. If I've got epilepsy, it may be the best thing that ever happened to me. Whole story, psychosurgery, big, long, The liberation of youth. Darwin. Darwin undercuts, the, undercuts the notion of the self as a transcendental soul. Computers, the notion of the mind as a computer, the notion of the brain as a computer, erode Kojito. One assault after another on the singular, undivided, complete self. That's the story of the 20th century. Not to mention the social upheavals. Two world wars, horror people doing things to each other that are hard to imagine. Destroying earlier faith. Destroying our certainty in the way things are. Anxiety, despair. One of my favorite books let me recommend it to everyone, 1991, The Embodied Mind by Barbados, Thompson, and Rosh. Absolutely wonderful book for her. The deep problem then with the merely theoretical discovery of mind without self in as powerful and technical a context as late 20th century science is that it is almost impossible to avoid embracing some form of nihilism, some form of retreat into despair and the notion that nothing matters, no value exists. Exactly the kind of thing that great philosophers like, letting us come back and say, guess what? We have it backwards. The moral precedes the ontological. The ethical commitment precedes the statement of fact. We have to stand as we are morally. before we understand the world as it is. So deep, so profound, Professor Shankman absolutely right in crediting that insight that the moral precedes the metaphysical, which doesn't at all change the nature of the physical. And that's what gets people because that's such a hard notion. contemporary philosophy now tries to bring this all together. Unsurprisingly, a number of authors turned to Buddhism at this point. The best, because they happen to be three Buddhist supreme, superbly qualified people, Eleanor Rothschild Berkeley, is one of the best going, the late Barrela Thompson, the embodied mind, they understand, they get it, and they explain to us. Mark Epstein, therapist, two books. Thoughts without a finger. Whoa. Bye-bye, Descartes. Mm-hmm. Psychotherapy without the self. Brand new book. Mm-hmm. People beginning to get it. Epstein's Buddhist practitioner. The passion of tradition. The passion of traditional This whole business, a lot of people get it by going sitting at the feet of the Dalai Lama. I, I'm beginning to get a little wondering what is it with the Dalai Lama? A sweet man! A sweet man, but that somehow these great scientists sit at his feet and come back and say, well, you know, as, uh, as he said to me, <laughs> it, it's really kind of weird. I mean, I, I, I think it deserves an independent analysis. How the Dalai Lama is becoming kind of a a beloved mascot of, uh, of, of the class of brain science. Uh, now here's, here's uh, Flanagan. Now Flanagan, here, I won't think this video, the print of small, I mean, I apologize. I just, but basically, he just saying, boy, the Buddhists really got it. you know, and we screwed it up in the Western tradition, but the Buddhists have got it right. I don't think so in quite the way he says it. He says the resources to see through the illusion of the permanent self traditionally avoided overreaching. Well, I just think that's going too far. And you cannot read three sutras. I will pick them and tell me that Buddhist authors have avoided overreaching. Oh, we got God, you <laughs> know, people going to, you know, come in and so many heavens you can't count them and more Buddhists than, you know, grain you know, grains of sand in the river Genji it's a florid literature it's a literature full of rhetorical overreaching it's, well, we never take that seriously oh, really? <laughs> you think those guys didn't mean it? I mean, that's why I think, look, nobody takes the Bible literally of course they do. <clears throat> I can't believe the no Buddhists take the future literally. So let's not you enough with the no-buddhis The point is we have the same interpretive problems in Buddhism that existing in interpretive problems of in any text. The good news and the bad news for us is it's text. It's not inspired text. It's not divinely revealed text. It's text which means we have to cope with that that's both our blessing and our burden that isn't about being lamps to ourselves so where does joba machine come in? well number one it's got to go beyond the head it's hard work hard work, hard work it has to be exemplified it has to be embodied that's what we've learned from Professor Eno this morning. It's not just talking about it. It's walking the walk We have to find a way of speaking that is not just the traditional hola not just the traditional Dharma talk, nor is it the detailed hermeneutical or exegetical analysis of texts in foreign languages. Both of those are extremely important, but we need to find a mid-level of discourse that respects the intellectual tradition of the listener and draws the listener forward from where that listener is. And says, right, Kant, okay, let's talk about Kant. Hegel, oh yeah. Let's do Hegel. Don't shy from it. Dive right into the middle of the western canon and say, guess what, we're there, the bullet train is going to Gaia, And we're there. But you know what? There are a lot of crazy people who get religion. General psychological health is the prerequisite of a self a sense the right self sense of self-esteem is required before you can give it up. Otherwise, you know, you're like, ah, uh, you know, just another kind of What A borderline personality getting into Buddhism, oh, it could be terrible. So, you know, giving up self does not mean giving up self. It means giving up of self all those subscripts. Now pay attention to the subscripts. Okay, I'm quick on, okay, I'm right there. To so the human is to be conscious, embodied, social, and incorrigible. Comprehending the relations of these occupied Western tradition, philosophy, and science. This is what religion's been all about. Losing it It's solved through an experiential identification of the self as a social moral process. The ethics precedes the ontology. You stand for it first, and then you find out what it is. But you have to stand. You have to avow. You have to mean it. You have to live it. That's the prior. That's the thing that comes first. That's what Jodo Shinshu is so extraordinarily about. Changes everywhere. I am part of that law, and you are too. Abiding in that is my freedom. Living in that is exactly what frees me. Let's not just dis- let's be sure we don't confuse the way things are from the way we talk about them. The way things are, neither are true nor false. What's true or false is what we talk about. Only my statements are subjective, faulty. Reality is never false. Just living there is hard. But understanding its difficulties is self-part of liberation. It's fun for it to be hard. Just getting through it is true. I'm always a work in progress. Till the day I die, and as Harvey Dumas taught me several weeks ago, then I'll be all in the baggage at the door. Isn't that wonderful? <clears throat> so we're liberated from illusions, we're free from ourselves, we're being made body, conscious, social, and Seems to me this is Shinran's message. Thanks, sir. So... <laughs>